0: Welcome to the Haunted Hacker Podcast, Max Hinnemeyer, Volume 2. So before we get started, I'll give a little bit of news and updates. Um, not a ton of, ton of stuff on the news. Um, I will be speaking in Oklahoma City on December 1st at InnoTech, and I'll be live at the InnoTech conference on TechStrong TV uh, that afternoon as well. Um, next month, I'll be speaking for the U.S. Uh, DHS ICE group, um, across the U.S., uh, as well as a couple other uh, uh, speaking engagements that are coming up soon. Uh, one in December for uh, the Yacht Conference in the British or in the American Virgin Islands, and uh, some more on that later. So today we have volume two with, with my buddy Max. Uh, it's always a pleasure having Max on the show. Always have some great conversations. And uh, Max, why don't you give us a little bit of your bio for those who haven't tuned in previously, and, and we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Thanks, Mike. And hi to our audience. It's a pleasure to be here again. I'm so, so glad to be here. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, I guess I'll keep it short. These days I work for a company called Darktrace. We are at the intersection of machine learning, artificial intelligence, and cyber defense. And I've got a very privileged position to look at the tech, look at PR and marketing and look at the product and speak to many customers. So I can see the hands-on cyber attacks in the trenches. But I can also see the big picture and see where the industry is moving and work a lot on the cutting edge research, which is amazing. But I've got a background in offensive security. I used to lead red teams and was a pen tester. And it's just in my blood. And I'm sure many of our listeners are very similar here, Mike. I know you are. And I've also worked in the SOC before. used to lead blue teams and caught and wrestled some um, advanced persistent threats, as people like to call them these days, myself here and there. So yeah, very engaged in the community. Awesome.
0: Appreciate it, Max. And it's, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, on the show. Um, you and I go, go back quite a ways. Uh, when I was in London, uh, for those of you who don't know our history, uh, I went to London uh, almost three years ago and uh, spent some time over there and met with Max in Cambridge and uh, Mike Beck in London um, because I was using Dark Trace uh, with a company in oil and gas. And uh, me and Max struck up a conversation and, and been friends since, so it's been, it's been a pleasure and we always have some, some really great topics. So what have you been up to since the, the last podcast? I'm
1: um, Still some of the same things, you know, um, meeting many customers, looking at threats, mentoring people is quite a big thing these days, helping people get into the industry, thinking about diverse backgrounds. But I've also spent a good portion of my brain cycles on thinking about active cyber defense, Mm-hmm. as people like to call it. And in, in another capacity, I work with a German but international think tank called Stiftung Neue Verantwortung, SNV. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can link it in the show notes, but they think a lot about at the moment active cyber defense, things like the hafnium web shell removal or um, some of the activities that the US Cybercom did in the past or the Emotet botnet takedown. So whenever a government takes an active action and um, into a territory or maybe even private entities do so, I think that's a very interesting topic because we see it more and more and there's kind of a lack of guidance, policy around it, assessments, frameworks. So um, I still do a lot of cyber stuff in AI, but I also spend a good portion of my thinking cycles on, on that aspect there. It's very interesting. So I, I
0: belong to a, a think tank in Europe called EMA, E-E-M aorg um, And I was just on their ISSE uh, conference uh, for Europe. And the topic did come up about ransomware and some of the active, active responses to, to ransomware, um, which I've been kind of tossing around the idea myself now for probably about a month or two um, and making some, some, some groundbreaking efforts on putting together an operation to take down some of those ransomware groups infrastructure Um, so I, I can't go too far into into uh, the data or the the technical details because we're still kind of unfolding the tool. Um, but it's going to be really interesting, and I, I think that's going to be the wave of the future. Um, you know, looking at how often ransomware hits companies, and what I'm finding doing all the incident responses that I do is that you know unless it's a large company or infrastructure, the U.S. doesn't really care. Um, they they let the the small shops end up paying the, either the ransom or taking a hit and, and having to dig themselves out by paying large fees to cybersecurity insurance or incident response teams. Um, so we're looking at it from more of a Robin Hood uh, type perspective. I Me and a couple other guys uh, are looking at taking some of the data that uh, is exposed by these groups and some of the known infrastructure and planning on a way of taking down that infrastructure. As a way to protect people, Um, because unless like I said, unless you're critical infrastructure or, you know, financial or large company, uh, the US government really doesn't care how much you lose or do you see the same
1: things in, in Europe as well? Yeah, you mentioned some super interesting points, but I think that's the same across the world. I don't think they don't care. It's just a resource problem, right? There's so much ransomware going on. Mm -hmm. And I predict, I think it's going to get worse as we see ransomware actors shift from the big game hunting to the mid game hunting, Mm -hmm. which we already see in our data where it's much more about the, the hidden champions, the mid to small size companies where it doesn't attract enough attention for the FBI or the NSA, to go and hunt down the reds infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So companies are left to their own devices, and I think it's going to get worse. I think it's really good to see those government actions, though, that we started seeing. Mm-hmm. It's another tool in the toolbox to combat cybercrime ransomware. For too long, it's been you a know, free game. Anybody with a bit of skill and a bulletproof infrastructure could wreak havoc and earn a lot of cash and was basically immune from law enforcement. So I welcome these efforts to a certain extent. I think it's a very differentiated discussion depending on the operation how it's conducted. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the things you highlighted or hinted at, Mike, um, with your crew, where you maybe collect that um, attacker's infrastructure information and maybe you bundle it and hand it to the right law enforcement right. agencies or you you find the vulnerable spots mm-hmm. and you know you help weaponize those or whatever you plan there. I don't want you to spill beans, but I think there are really good things that even private or non-government entities can do. help that fight i even thought about almost like a bug bounty but for malicious infrastructure let's say you get your hands on reevil's command control server Mm. um it out to a closed bug bounty program where you know trusted and background checked hackers can apply and they rip it apart and look for potential ways to break into other similar infrastructure and then the money comes from law enforcement agencies for example i'm just making this up as i speak but i think there's a lot the industry is exploring at the moment where we can prot and attack, threats um, or attackers' infrastructure.
0: I think it's really important. Um, you know, I, I recently saw uh, during incident response um, where we had responded to a, a medium-sized company. We'll just put it that, um, and they were attacked once in September, and then you can see other actors jumped in as well, and it was almost as if they were working together. But the funny thing was was they weren't necessarily only after money, it was also information. Um, but this had to do with a transport tech company. So part of infrastructure, um, it, it jumped up onto the FBI radar. But what I'm finding is, is a lot of the typical ransomware events that we're responding to, it's almost like the ransom is a secondary to the primary motive. Uh, the primary motive being more intelligence gathering, and just viewing how that company does business, not necessarily taking anything from it or manipulating the data, but collecting the information. And I passed this by somebody who worked in an agency. I said, you know, this is just my theory, but I really do think that a lot of these ransomware events, ransom is not the, the key focus. It's more intelligence gathering, like building dossiers on individuals. And he was like, you know, I can't confirm nor deny, but you're you're on the right track. Um, so that's that's what got us going on this is the fact that there are so many ransomware events and a lot of them are starting to migrate into not only encrypting hard drives or share drives or servers, it's also going as far as going to the nimbles and to the backups, um, rendering them useless. And so here's these companies trying to you know stay afloat and they call us and you know before we even talk about, uh, ransom. That, that's usually the last thing we want to talk about. First thing we do is we, we try to get a you know, pulse on, on what's bleeding right then and there. And then we try to move to, okay, what can we do to get you up the quickest while maintaining you know, consistency across the servers? And so we get them back up. Then we worry about the threat actors. Um, but the funny thing is, is a lot of these threat actors are sharing the same entry points and you'll see the smaller groups go in and start building their launch pad for other attacks. As well as you know, setting up ransoms, but the big APT groups that end up coming in, you don't see them move very much. You see them drifting in and out of the network, but it's more like they're hitting the share drives looking for personal information or for you know individual views. Um, do you see that a lot in, in, in Europe as well? I, I'm pretty sure it's probably global, right?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's, you mentioned so many interesting points there. Um, it's really hard to say these days what the actual motivation is in an attack, or sometimes even to separate threat actors in mm. a single incident. Um, we almost every ransomware attack we see, I don't have the data on me, but I would say almost every, like I said, is double extortion at least. It's much more about the data exfiltration these days, not so much the encryption. I think a big part of the industry is still focusing on stop the encryption, but. Mm. You know, if you lose all your IP or you maybe dirty laundry or your emails to your competition or just the public internet, mm. that really hurts a lot. And it's much more business disruption. So not just encrypting everything like WannaCry style worm, you know, hard drives, but hitting the business critical functions or maybe the link to the industrial control systems to grind the company to a halt to hurt the revenue. So we see that a lot. But like you say, um, it's... The initial point of entry is almost ubiquitous these days because it could be supply chain, could be access to stolen credentials, spear phishing, if you don't have good tech and awareness training, it just gets in, Mm. zero days or end days. So what we see a lot is that there are these entry points, often super low hanging fruits, open RDP servers without brute force protection, Mm. VPN technology with known vulnerabilities, not even zero days, Um, spear phishing, as I said, or others. Very lately, we see a lot of GitLab exploits, for the git servers because of the high level vulnerability and still exchange proxy log on proxy shell so there are these points and they are just getting hammered so the companies you know just getting smashed and especially mid and low tier companies and i think what's very nefarious there being a technologist we see a lot of automation in these attacks mm. it's Very often, it's the manual attack, especially the ransomware. But there's so many lower attacks that just do crypto mining. And I'd say 99% is fully automated. They, As you know, they just scan the internet. They look for vulnerable services, somehow get in and then deploy their multi-functional backdoors and maybe Mm -hmm. their crypto mining. But that backdoor can be purchased by any threat actor normally. It's part of the business model. And then it's open season, right? I don't even need to get the initial access myself as a nation-state actor. I can just buy it. And I think that's where that whole idea of um, thinking about assume breach. And you know, I don't wanna say zero trust because it's such a big buzzword, mm-hmm. but not trusting your perimeter, not trusting your DMZ, not trusting your crown jewels, but just see what's there, see what happens. You need that visibility. So I think I agree. We see that globally as well, more ransomware, double extortion, mm-hmm. definitely more data exfiltration, And then we can just speculate about the real intention behind the attacks, right? It's attribution with just digital data is basically impossible you need human and, and signals in for that.
0: yeah 100 um, percent. we did see a lot of ransomware as a service type attacks recently which is really interesting um, and when you say low-hanging fruit we we've had quite a bit of, of that as well when it comes to um, vulnerabilities right so pulse secure you know vpn service stuff like that and and the uh, exchange server vulnerabilities seems to be nonstop. Um, the last two that I've done uh, were both exchange vulnerabilities, and it was blatantly obvious. Um, and, and it's really hard for a lot of these companies. You know, I was, I was on the phone call with one of them. And it was really late at night. And uh, just hearing the stress and, and you know, the agony of, of the medium business, you know, and the guy talking about how he's going to have to shut his doors. You know, it just, it, it makes me angry to the fact that I know that there's a call center sitting somewhere and, and they're selling these, you know, ransomware as a service type packages. And a lot of people don't understand the dichotomy of the underground and, and how these ransomware groups work. Um, we talked about on a think tank. Exactly. You have one group scans the internet and they sell that data to another group. That group goes in, looks at the vulnerabilities, breaches, whatever they can. They sell that block of IPs on the dark web. To whatever ransomware group that, that is the highest bidder, and so really the people attacking, the, doing the actual ransomware is really the last leg, and they don't even half the time they don't even know what network they're breaking into or deploying it on, um, and it just it's become such a commoditized environment where, you know, these people are, are high movers within financial sectors, you know, Bitcoin, um, all the all types of uh, cryptocurrency which brings up another good point that you brought up about um, the US government going after uh, Bitcoin. <clears throat> we saw that with uh, the last big uh, breach. And it kind of made me question how secure is cryptocurrency if the FBI is able to go grab wallets?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good point. And just taking one step back from, from um, the Bitcoin discussion for a second, because what you mentioned before, I think, is what few people realize, right? I mean, you and me, we have the luxury to see the red side, attacker side, and we also did incident response. We feel the agony, like you say, Mm. but for the attackers, it's just a job. It's completely faceless. They just move from target to target and they cause so much grief and harm. And I still see many people in our industry say, we need more cybersecurity experts and more incident response. And that is true, but that's not the way out of this, right? right. There's so many victims how many mics and how many of our listeners that are experts are there to, you know, cover that ground? Simply not enough. So when we think about active cyber defense, we, I mentioned earlier, I think Hafnium, the web share removal of the mm-hmm. Emotet takedown, And just from an academic perspective, even just standing up a honeypot that looks like, you know, um, an interesting system could be considered active cyber defense because you lure somebody on your ground. You might be operating in gray or red territory there which I'm sure you and me agree is quite risk-free to a certain extent, but still you do something outside your own space. And I think what's so interesting with the current discussions and what we see being conducted by governments is that this is maybe an efficient tool. You know, some of these operations with active cyber defences because there are too many companies and too little defenders. It's not scaling at all. So maybe there is a point to be made about helping them if they can't help themselves, remove that web shell, help them patch vulnerability. I'm not saying pro or con, but I think we need to think about scalable solutions here and just throwing more people at it won't help. You know me, I'm I'm a huge fan of technology and machine learning. Mm. And I think there's something to be said about aggressive automation and defense from many different angles. Um, to scale out that that defensive layer. But I also think government-led active cyber defense can be another solution, but it's never going to be unilateral, right? We need better... It can't be a replacement. Active cyber defense can't be a replacement for organizational resilience, I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, I think it needs to come from all sides and angles. And then, sorry for hogging so much speaking time. I always love listening to you, but you sparked so many ideas there. Um, The Bitcoin discussion is also very interesting because it is... It is so speculative, right? Whenever I hear people say, I invested in this crypto, I think you're speculating. Nobody has an idea how this actually works or who's pulling the strings or what the real model behind it is. And like you say, if the FBI can seize wallets one way or another, Mm. can you trust it? I'm, I'm not trying to dump or shorten a Bitcoin price or anything. Of course, I won't. But it is, um, even as somebody who lives in briefs crypto and cyber, it is very complex and very intransparent. And tying it back to our ransomware discussion, we see and always have seen actors shift to Monero as maybe a more bulletproof technology and even more privacy and anonymous conscious. Mm. So I think, again, these efforts of seizing um, Bitcoin wallets, that's awesome, obviously, and trying to impose sanction for bad behaving players in the death market is good but it's a whack and mole game, more or less, at the moment, because there's so many cryptos and so many ways to shift this. Even NFTs, non-fungible tokens, could be used to launder that money, right, if you wanted to.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, it, you know, it's funny about Bitcoin is, you know, to watch Bitcoin currency and, and the value, I think an important key factor to watch is people like Elon Musk. Elon Musk directly affects cryptocurrency. And I don't know what kind of... Cadence, or, or or what kind of uh, program he has set aside, like following, you know, when he dumps money into Bitcoin, when he pulls it out, um, but you see him do that all the time. He'll load up money and dump it into Bitcoin. The value will go up, and then he'll yank it out and put it in so- something else. It's really interesting to watch how that market fluctuates. It's so volatile, um, but with uh, you know the security of of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, it brings it brings up a bunch of questions, right? So like you said, if the FBI can get a hold of Bitcoin wallets, I mean, how secure is it really? And we saw this when, let's say Tor came out and, you know, everybody was using it to mask themselves on VPN and, and really, you know, get that anonymity. But the next thing you saw was the FBI bringing together some technology and building uh, exit nodes. Uh, so that anonymity, when, you know, breaking the law or doing things on the dark web, that anonymity was slimmed down. And I wonder if that's the same method and the same uh, operandus uh, that they're using for cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, I think you're making a really good point there. I don't know what they do in terms of crypto. I would imagine it's collaboration between clever tech, that's under lock and key, and collaboration with the crypto exchanges or middle people, you know, it's humans and technology. Mm. But the super important point you're making is If there is a platform that a lot of people use for offensive purposes, whatever that might be, could be Tor, could Mm. be Telegram channels, could be um, encrypted iPhones, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of attention from law enforcement and governments, which means they're probably trying to backdoor it, not not the iPhone, of course, but, you know, they're trying to get some form of access one way or another. Mm. And that's why there's always the argument in ethical hacking circles or, you know, in People walking the gray line, do I use these big known secure services that are closely watched by law enforcement or do I create my own if I have the tech capabilities? Because I can be sure it's likely not going to be as heavily in the focus of people. What I get concerned about is exactly what you say for cryptocurrencies, they're so volatile. And I think if you've got the money like Musk and it's speculation for you, it's your fun money, that's, that's okay, everybody can decide that for themselves. I get concerned when I I had that a few years ago, I was flying from Frankfurt airport and I sat down to have lunch and opposite me sat down a, um, somebody who works on the airplane, you know, just hands out food and one of of the flying assistants. And he started educating me. He didn't know what I do, educating me on what crypto to buy and how to invest. And I thought, well, maybe you got all the tech knowledge, but it's not your line of work. And I guess you're just speculating and don't really understand what's going on there. And that really concerns me because there's so many people in over their heads. I guess mm-hmm. where there are market forces at work that are really not predictable. And yeah, it could just be burned overnight. Plus, with security, right? As a security practitioner, how do you keep your wallet safe? Does, does you know your non-tech friends? Maybe some people in your family you extended ons and. Um, uncles that are in their 60s, do they really know how to secure their Bitcoin wallet? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or even or if they don't, do they trust the Bitcoin exchange or the crypto exchange to do it? And we've seen how many attacks there have been against these crypto exchanges. And it's kind of the same with NFTs. I like to compare the two when you buy digital art with non-fungible tokens. It's mm-hmm. also just a piece of software that you keep in a wallet. And that's become so mainstream that, again, I'm I'm concerned that people, mainstream people, are not quite um, savvy enough to keep these things digitally secure in many cases.
0: I mean, if you look at, if you look at the history of computing and online computing, uh, to rely on the users, everyday users to be able to secure their platforms, you know, to any kind of degree is wishful thinking. Um, and when you look at you know, the different financial systems, they've all been under attack since the beginning, um, chips and Fedwire, um, everybody's wanted to get into those two systems forever. Um, and I think back in the, I want to say late 70s, early 80s, Russian group actually got into one of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, relying on cryptocurrency, I think the government, US government really pushes cryptocurrency a lot. Uh, just recently, it's, it's really been interesting. Um, and a lot more places are taking cryptocurrency here in the US. Uh, and I think a lot of that started during the pandemic when I know in London, when I was there. Um, there were stores that were not accepting cash whatsoever. Now they would take Bitcoin and they would take PayPal or cards, but they would not take cash. Uh, and I remember back probably late nineties, um, a conspiracy theory that, that caught wind on the internet and, and people were like, Oh no, uh, the fact of a cashless society. Um, that was the biggest fear back then. But now it's like the world is embracing, it, you know, so that that conspiracy theory is no longer a theory. It's, it's becoming true. Uh, And I think, you know, the more we rely on systems for everyday use, uh, whether it be healthcare, automotive transport, uh, air travel and financial, the more we rely on Internet connected systems to do those functions, the more at risk the globe is in general. Uh, When you're talking about a whole financial system moving from what used to be, you know, a general system within each country moving to a global shift on a cryptocurrency level, I mean that opens doors for attackers and puts neon lights around the door. I mean because that, that's going to be the next big target.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Mike. Um, I sometimes feel like we live in Shadowrun or Cyberpunk world, right, where it's just cred sticks and everything's cashless and big corporations headhunt for the best hackers. Mm-hmm. It's reality now, more or less, um, saying with a cheeky eye here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's. I'm very concerned about what you just outlined. You know the systemic risks, but mm-hmm. less because there's a shadow conspiracy. You didn't say this, I know, but some people think there's like the big bad APT and they're pulling all the strings mm-hmm. and they have backdoors everywhere. I think it's much more just bad system design. We've seen that just in the UK recently, where I think um, somebody in the chain for buying and selling houses has been hit by ransomware, likely mm-hmm. indiscriminately. You know, just some ransomware affiliate trying to make money. And because of that part of the supply chain being interrupted, I think one fifth of UK house movers couldn't sell or buy their houses or have been in the process and now stuck because that crucial chain is down. So I think you're completely right. As we get more digitized and we see IT and OT convergence, another interesting aspect there, and just mm-hmm. move to the cloud and BYOD and work from home and you know, digitized life, we're much more reliant on all of these things. Maybe not so much for critical like you know, um, keeping somebody alive in hospital, that is true Mm. as well. But the everyday conveniences, pupils and students being able to do remote learning, having, being able to sell your house, getting um, your cash out of an ATM, that's what impacts quality of life besides the critical events that we hear about sometimes. So yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely. And, you know, talking about digitized life, um, you know, when I got back to the States, I was having to be followed up for COVID, the online doctors that you see, um, you know, it, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, just with a simple tool like UC SNF uh, or anything like that, I could grab the video conversation between a patient and a doctor. I mean, how secure is our health records now? Because before we had the, the health industry maintaining those records for us in an electronic version. But now we have to worry about not only do they have an electronic version, but you're transmitting it electronically to the doctor. And a man in the middle with, with something like UC Sniff or, or EdERCap can get your whole conversation. Um, I just I, I think the more that we dive into, uh, the working from home was just the door. That, that was just the entry point into what we're about to see as a new norm. Uh, back then, we thought working from home was the new norm. But the more I see, especially in everyday life, like if I go to the bank here in the U.S., the hours are, are minimized. And when I get home, they say, well, you can log on talk to someone face-to-face via our system. So you're doing away with that human interaction completely. And we're having to trust the security of systems. And like you said, the the engineering of systems, it's been this lifelong issue, I think, where companies want to be first to the market. They want to be first to the technology and they don't really work out all the bugs because, hey, we can do that afterwards. Let's get this to market so we can be the first to market. So we're pretty much at the, the, I guess, underneath the chopping block of those industries right now, uh, hoping that our everyday life will be secure. Um, but as you saw, like we had a ransomware event in the U S that actually killed a child in the hospital. Um, so it's starting to bleed into physical effects of people.
1: Yeah. We, we had one in Germany where a patient died, a woman, um, on the way to the hospital, that hospital got ransomed. They had to divert the woman in the ambulance and she died on the way. It's wow. absolutely terrible. Um, but yeah, like you say, again, I'm, I'm probably a fatalistic German and very pessimistic. I'm less concerned about a mic sniffing with Atacap. I'm more mm-hmm. concerned about that healthcare provider having to make that data available over an unencrypted FTP server with a default password. Okay. And you know, somebody stumbles across it. That's, that's the stuff we see every single day. And again, people can say you have to, that's what we hear a lot in the industry. I think I'm very critical. People saying we have to improve your security. You have to follow these 20 checklists, but that is never gonna scale ever. Yeah. So, like you say, we have to work on systemic improvements, and that can be done through policy. That can be done through the big vendors, and you know, just the thing I believe in strongly is good technology, which is a tiny part of that, but something to help systemically improve these things. Yeah, I think
0: cool. I think hiring uh, into the cybersecurity field, we're doing a very poor job at right now. Uh, we keep advertising this the skills gap, but when I look at different organizations, I I, I try to get on the different job boards. And just look at how they're posting entry level jobs. And when they're posting an entry level job for somebody who needs five years' experience for the entry level job, we're cutting ourselves out of potential employees, potential good employees that may not have the traditional cybersecurity background. Um, and me and Kevin Thomas talked about this as well. You know, when you're in college, you take history, math, music, literature, all this stuff. To get a degree that says, "Hey, he's reached this level of education," in cybersecurity, it's not like that. You take one specific course, and usually it's vendor-specific. You get that certification. Oh, you're, you're ace. You're good to go. Why not have a cybersecurity program where you have to learn all the different principles? Plus, you got to have, you know, your history, your math, your English. Let's go back to a collegiate way of, of training people. And that way, bringing them into the workforce well-rounded instead of, oh, yeah, I know Azure, but I don't know how to defend anything. You know, that, that, I think that's where we're failing.
1: Yeah, I, I think I agree to a certain extent on that. Um, and I've got a, quite a strong view on, I don't think you said we should train people earlier. I think you said we need to focus more on how we train, right? Not vendor courses, but like proper and, cybersecurity essentials
0: and early as well, because the kids yeah. nowadays have the, the technical ability to run an iPad at two years old. Why not start training in elementary school on safe computing and cyber defense?
1: Yeah, I, I'm in two minds about this. On the one hand, I think that's what needs to happen at the moment because yeah. the world is big and scary and bad. On the other hand, I'd like my kids rather to think about becoming an astronaut or solving cancer and not worry about cybersecurity. So I'd rather again. I'm I've, I'm a very strong technologist here. I said it a few times. So sorry for the strong use here to your audience, but I'd rather have us try to iron out these problems on another level, where it might be technology or governments or you know cross um, vendor collaboration or better standards than having our kids having to learn cybersecurity as a mandatory thing from the early age on. I don't think that's healthy, um, really. But I agree it would be necessary at the moment because mm-hmm. there's no other way around it at the moment. Um, but you make a, such an interesting point there about diversity. And I think the skill gap in quotes here for the folks mm-hmm. just listening and not seeing us um, is very much self-made. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at, I used to be an ArcSight consultant. I used to implement SIM sure. tools. There, there you go, uh, chat Um mm-hmm. And also, if you look at some of the Pentest tools or some of the current vendor tools, you do need five years of experience to understand pcaps and wireshark and etacab and it's all often just a bunch of crappy scripts glued together if you think about backtrack two or three before kelly came around my god did i that was a lot of pain it taught me a lot but it doesn't scale so i think we do need that expert workforce because a lot of the tooling technology is quite inaccessible. And I'm, I'm not pointing the finger, that's what every maturing industry goes through. Right. But again, I think if we manage to improve and make the tooling and the, the methods and the modus operandi and the processes more accessible to people, it gets easier to get more diverse people. in. for example, here at Darktrace, we, we've got a very visual tool that works on various levels where so Mike and Maxis can get the PCAPs and the raw data and threat Hunt, and maybe a junior just sees the output of the uh, machine learning and can judge based on that if they don't have the experience. Now, we hire a lot of people with junior backgrounds, mm. but with data science backgrounds or just, I like to call them <laughs> intelligent sponges. So they're super smart. They can work around data. They can visualize things. And because some tools are, are very visual and storytelling and you don't need to understand um, why a certain protocol is broken or the latest CVE buffer overflow, that scales much better. And some of our best threat hunters have not studied any IT at all. They are former mm. teachers. They um, have been inside salespeople, code calling. They, um, one is a biologist, one is a linguist. One of our biggest thinkers is a linguist by trade, astrophysicist, and that is so cool. A, because you get diversity in, which is not a goal in itself, but it helps you spark new ideas, especially if you go threat hunting or investigating. So pivoting into actual trade here for a second. It is so powerful to get rid of normal biases. If you investigate an incident response and internal lateral movement, what you look at, you look at RDP connections, admin connections, PS exact, you do process investigations. I think doing external investigations with OSINT and VirusTotal and threat intelligence, that is quite well documented in our industry. But anything internal in a company, that is really hard to do and to understand. So seeing how some of our junior threat hunters, you know, thanks to powerful tools, obviously, these investigations and the ideas they have and the, the new um, thought inputs they bring in is just amazing. Everybody benefits from that. Plus, of course, besides the corporate perspective and the victim's perspective of having good investigations, for that person to join a growing industry and get presented with great challenges when they maybe didn't get the traction in their home industry or their home um, segment, that that is just amazing from every perspective. It's not always that great, obviously, you know, but um, it's been a really pleasant experience hiring people with diverse backgrounds for us.
0: Yeah, I think diverse, diversity and cybersecurity is, is very important. It used to be when I first got in the industry over 20 years ago, <clears throat> when you said diversity, you meant actually hiring a female because back then females in IT, it, it was one in a million, maybe. Um, but now it's, it, we've gone from that gender gap to a more diverse background. And I think the true meaning of diversity, uh, to be honest with you. Um, but back when we were trying to implement females into IT and cybersecurity, I, I said it was always important to get, to get both views from a male and a female perspective. We all have different views in general, but the male view versus a female view of a technical problem is, is it's, you need that holistic view. You can't just go by the male thinking, the, the male you know, looking at the different types of, of attacks because the female also lends more information into that into that problem-solving. Um, you know, and this has been studied for, for decades, you know, the logical versus the creative and, and so forth. Um, but I think we've broken into a new diversity. I think it's really exciting for, for everybody because no longer are we saying, okay, you don't have an IT background, we can't hire you. Now we're saying, oh, wait a minute, you, you, know, you went to med school, you know about how viruses work and how the body works. Here's the network. Look at the Ethernet cable as an artery. Exactly. Look at the CPU as a brain. Um, that same type of thinking, I try to relate that to, to people who work on my blue team. Um, try to break it down into different ways of looking at things, uh, not just ones and zeros, but, you know, in life in general. And a lot of cybersecurity can be related to the medical field, can be related to, you know, academia. Um, there's There's several ways to explain it.
1: It's so powerful and so interesting, again, because I didn't even think about male and female when I started speaking about diversity, mm-hmm. you know, because we we hire the people who are most fit for the job. We don't even care about gender, male, female, anything in between. It doesn't matter because right. everybody brings their unique perspective to the table. So, yeah, the, of course, there's the gender, non-binary. There's the background and your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found it very fascinating that people with no IT background, not just no security background, but no IT background can do really, really well. Mm -hmm. And, um, like you say, especially in blue teaming, when you want somebody, anyway, as an employee or team member, you want somebody who's dedicated, focused, hardworking. And when you find somebody who's cross-disciplined, who takes the leap of faith to look at a different industry for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. they're often highly interested. Some of our really good developers don't have a development background, but they have a creative way of looking at the problem, combining interface design with um, structural thinking and you know, talk to different teams. And it is it is very powerful.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good challenge too. I think that a lot of people lack that challenge in different industries and they come to our industry because we create that challenge. That, that challenge is, is residual. Um, recently, I went to Alyssa Knight's company, Knight Inc Media, and she said, you know, after my podcast, she, she, we got in contact. She said, uh, I want you to come work for me and do screenplay writing. I've never written screenplay in my entire life. It was a challenge, though. So I took it. I was like, sure, I'll take it. I learned so much just just by listening to her and, and some of the tools that she put in front of me and finished my first screenplay. I guess it was like two weeks ago. Um, and it was an accomplishment for me. You know, it, it's one of those things that I think we all need that that challenge in our life. I think complacency is cancer. Um, you get complacent and you get, you know, into the routine of, Oh, I'm just going to work to make a paycheck. And I think that actually shortens your life. I think the challenges that are put in front of me actually keep me going and keep me interested and thirsty for more.
1: It is purpose. Right. And Elisa does some really good stuff. So it's, it's amazing to see you two work together on various things. And it's, it's that challenges that help people grow. Also, if you take one step back and think about traditional SOC security operation centers, mm-hmm. if you read the literature from 10, 15 years ago, you had a level one function, a level two function, the threat hunters, the pen testers, and it was very rigid. Yeah. And I think that, that caused a lot of the burnout and the churn, especially in the level one and twos, because you just presented with the old school tools and to false positives all day. And nobody can thrive. There's no purpose in that, except for you can really chew through and hope to aspire to level three sometime. Mm. These days, luckily, if you look at modern socks, but where people get it, it's much more rotation, right? You got your level three hunters that join the red team for a few weeks to understand and work with them, use their tools. You have the red teamers work on threat intelligence for a while to create new leads. You got the level ones, shadow and join the threat hunters, which would be considered level four sometimes after the detection, the active threat hunting to get new ideas. If there still even is a level one, it's not being completely automated by saw technology or AI. Mm. So I think it's to your point of purpose and intention. <laughs> Presenting people with new problems and challenges inside their comfort zone so they can, well, at the edge of their comfort zone so they can Mm -hmm. grow, but, you know, still have accomplishments is very important. I'm not a people manager. I don't think I'm good at that, but I mentor a lot of people and I always try to push people towards the edge of their comfort zone to grow.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, We just formed a group at my company um, called Blue Bastion and formed a group called the Purple Team, but it's not an actual Purple Team. It's a, a phone call between the red team and the SOC. And we talk about new techniques and, and new tools and, and give everybody a taste of, of both sides of the equation. Um, and that was started, I guess, about a month ago. But what's really interesting at Blue Bastion, ideal integration, is the fact that when I went to work there, I was, I was brought on by Luke McCombie Pyro. And I, I took the job based on our relationship because I always respected Luke and, and he does phenomenal work. And I got to the, the company and I, I just made it sh- made it clear that I didn't want to do just one thing. And so they opened up everything. Not only do I do blue team, but manage the blue team and then red team and, and work on pen tests and, and do all kinds of, of really neat things that I wouldn't normally do in a company that was started. You know, Let's say if I would have done this 10 years ago, I would not have the opportunity because most of the time, those were separate companies, if not completely separate groups. Um, and I think that we're seeing a lot of that convergence in the industry as well. The only problem that I see with that new convergence, and sometimes it makes it difficult, is the platforms. So when we have a SOC 1, you know, a, a very new junior analyst come in and they're getting alerts from like, let's say a SOAR platform or from Carbon Black. Um, and, the, you know, they're looking at the alerts all the alerts are broken down and all the data is given. So they're left with, okay, I, I get this alert, but what do I add to it? I mean, it's all here. And a lot of the customers get the same response too, is I feel like you're copying and pasting these, these alerts. And we're like, well, to an extent, yes, because all of that is being done on the front side. On the back side, we're verifying and looking for more traces. Um, but a lot of the industry is not ready for that. Um, And I I don't know why that is. I think that, and this is my theory, is that a lot of the platforms, you know, excluding Darktrace and some other, you know, advanced platforms, they haven't really changed that much. Yes, the bells and whistles may have changed, but the operations and the data that's presented has not changed.
1: It is, yeah. I I completely agree that vendors getting complacent and stale Mm -hmm. a bit, and everybody can go into that trap, obviously. I'm glad to work at this place here, Darktrace, because we are all about innovation. I don't want to, you know, go into a rant about how much we innovate, but that is what we do: we use machine learning, cutting-edge tech, and apply it to cyber. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's it's hard to justify your level one job sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you work in, as an MSSP, either internal or external. I have this mental model of a detection pipeline where if you want to detect a cyber attack in monitoring, A, you have to have some evidence. You have to have a log somewhere. That log needs to go through a detection system, an EDR, an NDR, whatever, and create meaningful detection. Then the next step is that detection needs to get in front of human eyes. So the next filter becomes the human, right? Does that human triage that correctly? And do they escalate? If they escalate, are the correct levels and actions taken in Appropriate time, and then does the incident response team come? And I think as an industry, maybe 10 years ago, we struggled getting the right data in the first place, right? Telemetry, right? That's why SIMS was so big and the big data crake and getting it everywhere. Now we understand that's not the way forward. You need to be smart monitoring, not monitor everything at once. And I think we really shift the problem then to you have to have the right detections, right? I use the right use cases and try to engineer them correctly and the right thresholds. And I think with smart tech, we've gone past that. I think we're pretty good at detecting attacks. I think the biggest challenge is now the human layer where you need to get in front of a smart decision maker and they need to take the right action. And that, of course, where the level one job previously was to look at the detection, triage and escalate. That is via good tools, mostly done because the context is there, the correlation is there. I could say XDR tries to move towards that, but I don't want to dabble into buzzword territory here. Mm -hmm. But I think it becomes difficult for new people in the industry to add value on top of that. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think that's actually good because I want these young people to rather pull the levers or create new detections or help make decisions or patch the systems instead of, you know, looking at a, at a detection and saying that needs to be escalated because I think that should be done with smart automation.
0: Right. I, I totally agree. Uh, we recently had a pen test, internal pen test. And uh, one of my uh, SOC 1s I promoted to a SOC 2 was the first one to catch it. and. Everybody was like, well, you know, the red team said, well, we've been doing this for a couple of days now. I said, but you don't understand the, the, the monumental milestone this is because let's talk about containment. Let's talk about identification of a breach. We're talking 290 days in most cases before someone even knows they're being breached. She caught it in two days. So to me, that, that's a win. That's a win. Um, and, and you're right. I think it forces the, the more advanced platforms we have now that, that do that tier one triage, I think it forces the analysts to think on a different level and try to add value. Um, and so, what I've done is is kind of put together this this idea within the team that yes, those those alerts that come in are very important. But when let's say Carbon Black when Carbon Black tells you to blacklist that IP is blacklisted and, and alerts alerts you to that, why is it blacklisted? What 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 other platforms out there are reporting this this reputational uh, glitch? Um, put more into it, you know, add your own touch to it. And so we've, we've gotten more in the, in the routine of narrating those alerts on a personal level, other than taking machine output and throwing it to the client. And I think that helps a lot too, because now with, with a lot of the advanced platforms, they're almost cutting your client communication down by the, by the alerts they create. Um, so I, I continuously want them to add a personal touch to it, because I don't want to become a shop that gives machine output to the client. As good as it may be, it just, it, to me, it seems ingenuine.
1: Yeah, it's it's super interesting that you say that. We have something at Darktrace called the AI analyst mm-hmm. that automates the level one and two triage. It doesn't just, Darktrace creates a lot of um, point in time detections, interesting anomalies, like sending an unusual amount of data to a rare domain on the internet. And the AI analyst constantly triages over these point-in-time detections, the initial leads, and then creates a narrative and puts them together and adds context. So basically what a level one or two would do, right? They they put it together into an incident from point-in-time detections to an incident. And when we do trials, so-called proof of values, we come into new environments, learn for five days, and then present the prospect or customer with incidents from their environment. And in a lot of cases, Well, in the past, that used to be a bit human-driven where, of course, Darkface detects these things. And then we take a look and we say, well, these are the most interesting ones, so focus on those. Now the AI analyst does such a good job that there's not much to add, Mm -hmm. right? Our analysts look at the AI analyst incidents and think, yeah, well, pick these three out of the five a week and go with them because they're all interesting. So I still think that's a good thing, but I can definitely see where as a service industry or as service providers, there might be a struggle. And also on the point of, good tools in general. I, I think there's a lot of tools out there that do a lot of automation. Where a lot of tools for short, those on transparency, that what I mean by this is, it's great if somebody, some EDR presents you with a big incident, but if you try to scratch the surface, where did the data come from? How did you alert on this? What is the detection engineering behind it? Show me the raw logs. In many cases, you can't do this. So maybe that's good for level one because they can just take that alert and give it to the client. But if you need to pull the strings, if you want to threat hunt on this, if you want to instant response, if the mics and maxes come in, then we need the layers below that, right? The layers on below the pyramid. And often that's not possible because it's just pre-chewed and take it or leave it. So that, that was my rant for, for the evening. Yeah, my, my, my first impression of Dark Trace, um, I have to say
0: I was a skeptic at first. And, you know, when I saw the, the 3D interface and the, the UI, I thought, okay, this can't be for real. Um, and then I got into the advanced data search. And to me, you know, f- from my background, and not everybody's the same, but from my background, I could have done away with the user interface and went straight to the data because the data was there. Everything was there. Um, and any kind of platform like that, you try to criticize. There's always data to back it up. And Darktrace is so smart when it comes to not sending alerts. I hate the, I hate the word alert. and I hate the red, green, yellow, orange, all that. Nonsense. But when it's sending you information, all the information is, is tightly packaged. But when you get into the advanced search, it's all there, even the PCAPs, um, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to take a look at the AI analyst uh, portion of, of, Dark, of trace now. Um, to me, that, that's super exciting because I think that's where we're going to go as an industry is learning to automate more on the detection side. Um, I do, I do agree with you. I think that human, the human factor has to be involved, not only for creative searches, but also for some of the problem solving, um, and being able to look at things from an attacker's point of view, because as much as we train AI, we can't train AI to think with that gray streak. Um, it's either black or white. And so I think that we need to, you know, focus on that as well, but diversity is key. And, you know, I, I try to include that in all my podcasts. Um, I've had uh, groups like uh, Blacks in Cybersecurity um, and some other groups that were the, you know, the diversity in the, in the equation. But another thing I think we're failing at doing too is bringing some of this technology and, and some of this training to parts of the world that can't afford it or don't have the connection for it. Um, there are so many great minds in those countries that, we're wasting that talent, and I think if we make more of an effort as a as an industry to take this to the countries and the places that that don't necessarily have this type of capability, we're doing all our we're doing a a great thing for the rest of the industry. I think.
1: I yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mike. It's I was just thinking about that when you said diversity again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also people, maybe not just in different countries who are poorer, but maybe in your own country who are underprivileged. Mm-hmm. But I, I sometimes, if COVID allows, I used to go to schools and teach children about career prospect and cybersecurity and, you know, hacking and positive things. And I participated, not, not because I'm so great, I'm not trying to break, I'm just saying there are really good things happening mm-hmm. out there where underprivileged um, folks, people from underprivileged families, you know, working class in the UK or... Um, where there's problems in the social fabric of the family, they don't have access to tech or money or anything, but they're super smart, and you know they lack the opportunity. I really love Chris Sanders um, mm-hmm. Rural Technology Fund, mm-hmm. that is exactly hitting the sweet spot because often um, rural communities they don't have the access to tech, they don't have the funds for good um, courses at their local schools, and that has such an impact. And sometimes it's really it doesn't have to be very strong. i said a few times I'm big on mentoring and trying to create a culture of mentoring. I don't think it needs to be a formal thing for me to twice a week. And you read this and I talk about this. Um, a woman, a young lady from Nigeria, texted me the other day on LinkedIn and said, hey, I see you do threat hunting. Can I have a chat? I just entered the industry. And we spun up a dialogue and I went back and forth What about know threat hunting, what do you try to achieve. And it's just chatting really, right? Mm-hmm. But I always think the younger Max who broke, in, broke into the industry and had a few great mentors, I would have given an arm and a leg for mm-hmm. that kind of opportunity, not even trying to, you know, get hired into this company, but just talk to somebody who's walked that path before. And I had the, man, I, I'm so glad because I had the chance to um, meet some of my heroes, mm-hmm. right? Um, Kevin Mitnick, I spoke at a conference and I couldn't get my book signed because my talk was when he was doing the book signing. So, you know, I'm not on the same level as the people I admired in my youth, but I could rub shoulders or Richard Batvich from, um The big um, brain behind Zeke and not Zeke, Mm. but Corelight on network security monitoring, or Chris Sanders, or yourself as a big light, right? It's what I'm trying to say is it's such a small world these days without Mm. any barriers. It's great to exploit that for good and help people where we can. I don't have to go to Nigeria to help this woman just get a bit better in cyber. I can just do it by investing 10 minutes a week and chat to her.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of my big influencers when, when I was younger and getting into the industry was Johnny Long, uh, the guru hacker. Uh, He left hacking and started uh, connecting uh, countries in in Africa with technology. Um, And they have a thing called Hackers for Charity, uh, which is an excellent group that that helps out everybody that wants to get involved. Um, And I think those type of people, when I look back at at the people I looked up to in the industry, of course, people like Ralph Eshmandia, Uh, people like Chris Roberts, but then again, Johnny Long and and, and those guys that want to give back and want to see us grow as an industry globally, not just internally, but globally, I think is really important. Um, And as an industry, sometimes we forget that. I was just on a a podcast not too long ago with uh, some veterans, uh, Jack Scott and uh, Josh Mason, and we did stuff for veterans that day. Uh, and, and Josh Mason does some really great stuff for veterans, helping, helping them to get into the industry, which I think is, is super fantastic. And it's funny, you, you mentioned Mitnick because I just, I spoke at Kubrick, uh, conference not too long ago with with Mitnick and uh, he spoke after I did. And I thought, you know, you, you get to gauge yourself when you look at who you're opening for and it's like, wait a minute. I'm here now, you know, I still remember when I was really young and look at these people going, wow, I wonder what it's like, you know, and, and I think that if you, if you do the right things in the industry and you don't burn bridges and you give back, I think things promote you to those levels. It's not, it's not so much technical knowledge. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's what you do for other people that get you to where you want to go.
1: Be a, be a decent human being, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're motivated, cybersecurity is one of the best documented industries in the world. You want to do pen testing? just go and do all the free VMs and learn hacking and watch YouTube tutorials. Look for mentors, reach out. and You'll you be big. You make it great. You meet some toxic people. You meet some negative Nancy's. You, you meet some people you wish you haven't met, but that's, that's life. That's everywhere, right? There's so much optimism and so many good stuff. Just yeah, keep I mean, going.
0: I meet so many good people like yourself. You know, We had that talk in, in Cambridge for an afternoon. Um, and from there, I mean, we've got a great friendship now. And I think that that happens all over the place in cybersecurity. I don't think people pay enough attention to it. I think they look at them as colleagues and, oh, I met them and, and move on. But I like to foster those relationships because there's so
1: much you can learn from other people with different viewpoints and from different parts of the world. Yeah, I completely agree it's, it's good to be here at this time, I think. And really, I, I had the other day where I thought about, you know, the things I was able to achieve, because of all the support I had in the industry. And actually, like you say, you know, speaking after midnight at a conference or meeting at Defcon and Hat, some of the people I used to read their technical documentation and used to use their tools. And mm. I'm nowhere near the same level as they are, of course, but you know, it's I can approach them or Bruce Schneier, Bruce Schneier, yeah. one of the big academic brains, right? He talked about the coming AI hackers the other mm-hmm. day about applying AI to offensive operations. And that's something I'm quite passionate about as well. And of course it's controversial and everything, but you know, it's nice to see that I'm never going to be on his level, but we think about the same things. And I'm sure I can make an argument that he hasn't included in his ideas and he's got 20 that I haven't thought of, but it is really nice to see um, approaching some of these professionals and, you know, being somewhat close to them digitally sometimes. Yeah, that, that, we should definitely touch on that on the uh, Max Hennemeyer Volume 3, I
0: think. Um, when AI, the, the notion of AI first came out, my first thought was, yeah, it sounds great until so it gets in the wrong hands. And I think that that could be dangerous on so many levels. Like, you know, you look at the space race we're in right now and, and the nuclear arms race and all that stuff. We should definitely talk about that on the next podcast. But Max, we're uh, about up for our hour, and, and I wanted to, to really thank you for, for coming on the show and being such a good friend and you know, always have such a good time with you.
1: Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and good to be here. Cool. Any last words for the, for the listeners before we shut it down? No, just be positive, be excellent to each other, and I hope to see, hear, or speak to you soon. Awesome. Take it easy, Max. I'll talk to you soon. Speak soon.